From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A crafty bootlegger raking in millions, corrupt feds, early feminists, flappers. It is the stuff that made HBO's Boardwalk Empire a hit. Add in a murder trial that gripped Jazz Age America, and you've got Karen Abbott's thoroughly researched new book. And it's all true. The Ghosts of Eden Park follows George Remus, known in his day as the King of the Bootleggers. Before he was sent to federal prison in Atlanta, Remus controlled 35% of the country's illegal booze trade and had the U.S. Attorney General on his payroll. In fact, Remus's fate was a plotline on Boardwalk Empire, and as in real life, spoke of himself in the third person, as in this scene, confusing the young gangster Al Capone. I ain't his washerwoman. <laughs> Don't take it personally, kid. What do you think George Remus spent five years doing? Come again? I said, what do you think George Remus was doing for him? Ain't you George Remus? Who'd you think I was? You just said it like it was someone else. Karen Abbott is among the writers featured at the Decatur Book Festival on Labor Day weekend. She'll be at the Atlanta History Center on August 28th and at the Gwinnett County Public Library on the 30th. But we caught up with her mid-book tour in Louisville, Kentucky to learn more of this gripping true story. Welcome, Karen Abbott. Thank you so much for having me. So George Remus immigrated to the U.S. from Germany with his family around 1883. Not a happy childhood. What was his early life like? Well, he immigrated from Germany to um, the United States, um, and his mother uh, was so frazzled and beleaguered during this period that she actually forgot the names of four other children who had died um, when she was questioned by the immigration officer. Hmm. Um, and the family settled in Chicago, and uh, Remus's father, according to Remus's own words, was a mean and abusive alcoholic. Um, he would go out every night and come home drunk and sort of terrorize Remus's mother. And Remus himself um, had to sort of start saving the family. His father could no longer work when, when uh, Remus was 14 years old, and Remus quit school and went to work in an uncle's pharmacy and often slept on the cot there. He was too afraid to go home, um, and he would stay there for months at a time and just send money home to his mother. So that's where he learned about the druggist trade. He eventually bought the pharmacy and made Dr. Remus's patent medicines. What, what was he peddling? Oh, he was peddling uh, the sort of a variety of concoctions that a lot of people were peddling at the time. Remus's cathartic pills, um, Remus's uh, nerve tonic, uh, a sort of a, a relief for menstrual syndromes, um, copying Lydia Pinkham's formula, the famous Lydia Pinkham. But Remus was a very successful pharmacist. He 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 studied um, uh, the uh, exams and and uh, became a pharmacist. And uh, also was started taking law classes uh, and eventually became a lawyer as well. A very successful lawyer, known as the Napoleon of the Chicago Bar. And you describe some of his courtroom theatrics. What what are some of those memorable stories? Well, he you're right. He quickly became uh, one of the most prominent and successful defense attorneys in Chicago. And he became famous for his courtroom antics. Uh, he would weep. He would tear at his hair. He would leap around the courtroom. He would attack opposing counsel and end up in a tangle of limbs on the floor. Um, and, you know, his fans called him the Napoleon of the Chicago Bar, uh, but his detractors called him the weeping, crying Remus. <laughs> well, it was in his law office that he met one Augusta Imogene Holmes, a dust girl, and fell hard for her. What did you discover about her background? Uh, she was an interesting person in her own right. Um, you're, you're correct that they met at his law office, um, and they began commiserating about their mutually miserable marriages. Uh, Imogene was married and raising a, a young daughter, 
uh, named Ruth, um, and her husband was philandering. He never had any money. He was unreliable. They were in and out of court. You know, she was trying to get a divorce. It was coming difficult. And Remus's first wife was a good woman. Um, and Remus just, uh, according to her uh, complaint in their divorce, uh, Remus had a habit of, quote, coming home early in the morning. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, neither one of them seemed too committed to their marriages, and uh, they fell in love. Uh, Remus um, offered to represent Imogene for free in her divorce. They started living together. They started planning their own wedding. Um, but Imogene, you know, knew that Remus was poised to start making millions of dollars as a bootlegger. And I think she also saw, saw an opportunity there. Which is an odd choice because the experience he had with his father, he never drank a drop of alcohol on his own account. So how did he get into the bootlegging trade? Well, Remus um, started noticing that he, his uh, law practice was filling up with a different variety of client. Uh, there were men coming in who had been charged with violating prohibition laws. And Remus was astounded by the way they just easily paid their fees and, and sort of went on their way with no trouble. So he thought, I'm much smarter than these guys. And, I, you know, he saw a chance to clean up. And those were his words. Using uh, his pharmaceutical background and his legal background, he scoured the Volstead Act and looked for a loophole that he would be able to exploit and he found one um, with a physician's prescription. It was legal to buy and sell alcohol for, quote unquote, medicinal purposes. Um, and Remus thought that that was hilarious. He knew immediately that nobody was going to be using liquor for medicinal purposes. Um, but he he knew that if he would buy distilleries and acquire drunk companies and get withdrawal permits, he would be able to access all a lot of the pre-prohibition bonded whiskey and, and make millions of dollars. Well, that's something that surprised me. I didn't know how much liquor was already sitting in warehouses and distilleries at that time. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, thousands of gallons sitting around in distilleries just, just waiting for somebody like Reams to come along and access them. Um, but the true genius of his plan, after he acquired the drug companies and the distilleries and the withdrawal permits, was that he organized his own transportation company. So his men would load his alcohol onto the trucks and, you know, theoretically, they're delivering it to the legal medicinal market. But then his other employees, people also employed by Remus, would hijack those trucks, <laughs> steal all the liquor, and then divert it to the illegal whiskey market at any price Remus named. So he was essentially robbing Remus to pay Remus. Pretty uncanny. My guest is Karen Abbott. She is author of The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Chased Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. She's going to be at the Decatur Book Festival, the Atlanta History Center, and Gwinnett County Public Library in the coming weeks. Well, then he moved from Chicago to Cincinnati. Why Cincinnati? Well, Cincinnati was a strategic location. Um, it was uh, 80% of the country's pre-prohibition bonded whiskey was in a 300-mile radius of Cincinnati. Um, so in uh, 1920, Remus and Imogene married, and um, they moved along with daughter Ruth, uh, Imogene's young daughter Ruth, to Cincinnati. Um, and acquired a very large mansion in Price Hill, which was the um, wealthiest and most prestigious neighborhood in Cincinnati. Remus had great social aspirations, and so did Imogene, and she actually confided to a friend at this time that she was going to, quote, roll Remus for his role. Mm. Um, so she didn't always have the best of intentions when it came to Remus. Well, they bought this abandoned mansion, and that's something that uh, I hadn't also realized, that it belonged to a former brewer. And all of these people, their livelihoods affected by Prohibition, which pretty much supplied an army of unemployed bartenders, warehouse and distillery workers. How many were working for him when he got rolling? 
Remus, you know, quickly became a folk hero in Cincinnati. Um, people were indeed out of work because of prohibition and all of those industries that you just named. And it, he employed at least 3,500 people on his immediate payroll. Um, and, and that was a lot of people for, for a place like Cincinnati that had been really devastated uh, by prohibition. And, and, you know, prohibition in the beginning was not a popular law. And um, so Remus sort of established himself as, as a hero to these people, yeah. a lot of whom were also German immigrants, just as, as Remus was. So they had a sort of camaraderie there as well. So he sets up this whole system, this whole network. He calls it the circle. What, what's involved in making this circle spin? Uh, well, after he acquired the distilleries and the drug companies and the withdrawal permits um, and the transportation trucks, um, Remus decided that one of the smart things he could do to ensure his continued success was to have a connection in the federal government. Um, and a lawyer friend of his made an introduction to a man named Jess Smith, who was also a character on Boardwalk Empire. He was the right-hand man of Attorney General Harry Doherty. Um, and Jess Smith uh, basically was a liaison from the federal government to bootleggers, especially George Remus. And Remus paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes, probably totaling well into $2 million worth of bribes. Um, and Jess Smith, for, in exchange for this money, gave Remus authentic government withdrawal permits, uh, which he could use to get the whiskey out of his distilleries, and also made promises in terms of uh, Remus's safety in, in uh, legal matters. Um, he promised Remus he wouldn't get arrested. If he was arrested, he wouldn't go to trial. If he went to trial, he wouldn't be convicted. And if by some chance he was convicted, uh, he would never spend a day in jail. Um, Jess Smith would use his relationship with uh, Harry Doherty to make sure that Remus stayed a free man. And Remus uh, paid well for this for this assurance, um, and he considered Jess Smith his ace in the hole. Um, but the arrangement would not last very long. Well, we've got a clip from Boardwalk Empire. Of course, this is a fictional series, but this this is a call between Remus and the fictional Enoch Nucky Thompson, who is an Atlantic City bootlegger. George, hearing your name a lot lately. Calling to say thanks. Remus wasn't expecting any favors coming his way from Atlantic City. If you're talking about whatever deal you worked out with Jess Smith, let's just say I was helping both of us. We reached an agreement. Now Remus can buy his liquor permits straight from the source as often as he needs to. Sounds like you're rolling in it. <laughs> More like floating. Do you know what Remus is doing right now? I'm sure I can't imagine. Getting ready for a dip in his indoor swimming pool. Lavish. They weren't going to expect a finder's fee. <laughs> what for? The recommendation to Smith. Wow. You haven't changed. George, is the irony lost on you that you operate in Ohio but didn't know anyone from Harding's administration until I stepped up? You know what Remus doesn't like about you? The nickel and diming. It ends a little more saltily on the actual series. <laughs> but yeah. this, this man, he had the goal of becoming the country's sole bootlegger within a year, controlled 35% of illegal liquor sales. How much money was he making? The estimates uh, fluctuate wildly, uh, anywhere between $20 million and $40 million. And that's not adjusted for inflation. That's 20 or $40 million back in 1921. Um, so just an astronomical amount of money. Um, and, and he really couldn't, couldn't spend it all. You know, he, he threw these very lavish parties, uh, which is one of the reasons that people thought he was the inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. But he establishes a place to his central operations, a place called Death Valley Farm, which is pretty much a fortress with all these protocols and protections. 
really strategic and really smart, but something I found interesting also inspired a lot of loyalty within his runners. What was it? Was he really all the way down the chain and up the chain managing things? Uh, it's interesting that the whole um, reason for Death Valley um, becoming so important to to the circle and to his empire, um, you know, was uh, because Remus got attacked by whiskey pirates. Whiskey pirates, you know, weren't of the Ahoy matey variety. They were actually roving bands of thieves who would go to a, a distillery or a warehouse, bound and gag the watchmen, cut all the telephone wires, and steal all of the alcohol inside. Um, and Remus was um, attacked by these men one day on a on the bridge connecting Kentucky and Cincinnati, uh, and he fended off four men single handedly uh, to a degree where they still got away with his liquor. But later on, the pirate caught up to Remus and said, "You really deserved to keep all of your liquor." Um, but Remus didn't want that to happen again, so he and his uh, lieutenant, a man named George Connors, found this. Um, place just west of Cincinnati, which they called Death Valley. It was a sort of scattering of little homes down a deep hill. And they armed the place with automatics, you know, shotguns, all kind of weaponry. There were men stationed anywhere. Visiting rum runners had to press a buzzer to be allowed entry. And once the rum runners were in and Remus trusted them, he treated them like visiting royalty. Remus was definitely interested in engendering loyalty. Um, He didn't want these people getting alcohol from anybody else. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, his lavishly renovated mansion, he and his wife, Imogene, spending money like maniacs to equip this house. And they have this over-the-top New Year's Eve party in 1922. You know, the story that you write is he's lighting cigars with $100 bills and extravagant yeah. gifts. What was he doing? Let's let's have a sense of this Gatsby-esque proportion. Well, um, once the renovations were finished, which, by the way, cost about seven hundred fifty thousand dollars back in 1921, which is, you know, more than ten million dollars today in renovations. And that's not including the one hundred seventy five thousand dollar pool, indoor pool that um, he also built and which he christened the Imogene Bass in his (laughs) wife's honor. And Remus and Imogene were both very interested in establishing themselves in Cincinnati society. You know, they were both grew up dirt poor, um, and, and they had these large aspirations. You know, they um, wanted to be accepted and respected by Cincinnati names like the Longworths and the Sintons and the Tafts, uh, you know, the whole William Howard Taft and his family, of course. And, and they sent out invitations to prominent people all across the country, including society people in Cincinnati. Um, and, and they really hoped that this was going to be their, their special night, their grand social debut. Um, and so Remus wanted to impress. And he did give out these lavish party favors. He gave out uh, diamond stick pins for the men and watches for the men. And the ladies each got a brand new 1922 car. He placed a $1,000 bill under every guest's plate. And he did indeed uh, light guest cigars with a $100 bill. <laughs> and, and you have to remember, this is in an era when the average annual salary was about $1,300. Um, so just staggering affluence. Um, and uh, Remus, Remus, it was his big chance to enter Cincinnati society. And um, I'm not quite sure that, that he achieved that goal. We'll leave you with Fats Waller's version of The Sheik of Araby. That was one of the songs playing at that famed New Year's Eve party. Karen Abbott will be back with us. She's author of The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. Stick around for more on this boisterous bootlegger, including his stint at the Federal Pen in Atlanta and the woman assistant U.S. Attorney General who eventually helped bring him down. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott with author Karen Abbott. Among the writers featured at the upcoming Decatur Book Festival, she'll also be in other places around Atlanta. We'll have a list of that at our website, gpbnews.org. Well, she comes through piles of records and news accounts and 5,000-plus pages of court transcripts for background on her new book, The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. And it is indeed a shocker of a portrait of prohibition Missionary America with some indelible characters, including liquor kingpin George Remus and his wife Imogene, who I promise we'll get to, and Mabel Walker Willebrandt. Both women played major roles in his downfall. And Mabel was only the second assistant attorney general of the U.S. Mabel Walker Willebrandt was her name in charge of issues relating to the Volstead Act, which established prohibition in 1919. And she was determined to take Remus down, a character loosely based on her. Esther Randolph was featured on the HBO series Boardwalk Empire. So, Eva, this is a really high-profile career for a woman at the time. Where did Mabel Walker Willebrand come from? Uh, absolutely, it was. It was, um, and she was from Los Angeles, not originally. Um, she actually grew up um, on a prairie in Kansas, sort of an itinerant life with her mother and father. She and uh, George Remus actually have some interesting parallels. You know, they're both of German descent. Um, Remus quit school when he was 14 to go work in the pharmacy, and Mabel Walker Willenbrandt only began her formal schooling at age 14. Um, and they both did not like to lose. Um, hmm. they, were, they were evenly matched wits. I think they were both equally brilliant. Um, but she grew up sort of on a, on a Kansas prairie. She was very tough. And she ended up going to law school in Los Angeles, um, and where she became Los Angeles's first uh, female public defender. She took cases exclusively um, handling women clients, and uh, she was very proud of her work with um, uh, prostitutes. She made sure that the Johns also got called into court, and it wasn't just the onus wasn't on on the women. Um, and she had uh, some very important mentors who found out that there was going to be a new uh, uh, the, the position of assistant attorney general was indeed open, and they were eager to um, get another woman there to curry favor with the newly. Um, triumphant suffragists, you know, by the when it's important to note, I think that when Will and Brandt took office in 1921, women had only had the right to vote in this country for nine months. Hmm. And suddenly here she is, 32 years old, only five years out of law school and had never prosecuted a single uh, case in her career. And suddenly she's in charge of thousands of prohibition cases across the country, including cases against George Remus. Um, and it's just easy to imagine why her crooked bosses at the Justice Department um, and all the way up to the presidency, all of President Warren Harding's Ohio gang, um, all of whom were in cahoots with bootleggers. You know, I'm sure they figured, oh, let's let's hire the little lady and, uh-huh. and she'll just be so overwhelmed. And, and let's just see, you know, uh, just we'll, we'll just be able to continue on business as usual. And of course, Mabel Walker Willenbrand takes office and just be immediately begins cleaning up. Yeah. And she was reluctant to take the job initially. Did she see that corruption all the way up the chain? I think she initially she worried about um, the fact that, uh, you know, was she just going to be a token? Was she just a sort of quota hire? Was she just going to be checking a box and she she was going to be more of a figurehead? Would they actually give her real work to do uh, where she could make an impact? Um, and she found out that soon enough, you know, they, they did, you know, give her the work. They just didn't expect her to be competent at it. Um, and, you know, just to add to the pressure, I have to say, uh, Mabel Walker Willenbrandt was nearly deaf 
And she spent every morning um, arranging her hair for an hour to conceal her hearing aids. Mm. So if you can imagine, just that added bit, bit of pressure in addition to everything else she was coping with at the time. I mean, she does take this job and she's put at the head of a 1,200-man army of what was what were known as Mabel men. Not, not very well paid, not very qualified for the job, but there were a lot of other challenges. She had to defeat bootleggers with lots of money and a number of ingenious ways of getting alcohol into the country. You list some of them, I thought it was astounding. Yeah, I mean, the United States had uh, two long, craggy borders and 1,800 miles of coastline, all of which was unnervingly porous. Um, there were, uh, you know, fleets coming in from Mexico to Texas, fleets coming in from Canada to the Michigan Peninsula, you know, all guided by searchlights. Um, and on the ground, you know, people would be hiding liquor under bales of hay across trucks. There were, um, you know, liquor submarines that raised and lowered out of sight and coming in Long Island. Um, there were special sea seafaring tugs that had compartments that could hold enough alcohol for 30 New Year's Eve parties. <laughs> you know, even down to the individual, uh, a double amputee boasted that he could hide 36 pints in all of his prosthetics. I'm sure a lot of people were doing that. Um, and women were even hiding booze inside of false rubber breasts. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, which made, was interesting because back then uh, a lot of federal prohibition agents were either too nervous or too polite to search women. And in some cases, um, in some states, it was actually illegal to search women at all. So women took full advantage of that. Well, and then she goes in. Her first assignment, George Remus, had no one at the DOJ up until that point been after him? Oh, of course not, because they were all taking bribes from Remus. Uh -huh. He was pretty well, he was pretty well boarded off. Yeah, yeah. They all knew who Remus was. And you have Jess Smith uh, meeting up with Remus frequently to hand over some whiskey permits and take the money. Um, you know, and Harry Doherty, uh, Willenbrandt was also always careful to say that he did not impede her work in any way. And actually, the letter that, that arrived in Harry Doherty's desk complaining about Remus, he put it on Mabel Walker Willenbrandt's desk. Um, and she she decided that this was her big case. Um, she she looked into Remus's operation and said, this is the one that's really going to make my career. And and just another interesting note about her, uh, Mabel Walker Willenbrandt did not believe in, pro, uh, in prohibition. She thought it was a, a feudal law that was not going to be easily enforced. Um, and she she actually enjoyed alcohol quite a bit before she um, took office. She liked California clarets and, and wine. Um, and it's just sort of another interesting contrast or parallel with Remus. You know, here's the, the teetotaling bootlegger and here's the, the prohibition enforcer who liked to drink. Here's another scene from Boardwalk Empire. Um, you'll note that I'm probably a big fan, which I was. Um, the Willebrand character, Esther Randolph, played by Julianne Nicholson, and this is with Nucky Thompson. It, it's a fictitious setup. She's basically, you know, the prosecuting attorney in night court, and they go to have breakfast the next day. Let's hear it. Is there a particular point you're trying to make? Your boss is going to indict me to save his own skin. I'll root for the home team, then. Which team is that? The one that set you up for a fall in Atlantic City? And then blamed you for bungling it? Worked out pretty well for you. But you had me on the ropes, Esther. And if you don't think I was sweating, you're selling yourself short. I'm flattered. Here you are now with a 20-cent breakfast. Intelligent, capable, and invisible. Is this where Eve gets offered the apple? It's where I offer you George Remus. He? I know who George Remus is. Don't you think he belongs in jail? Instead of you? He's the biggest bootlegger in the country. 
and I can give you his entire operation. He's directly connected to Jess Smith. And Smith connects to Doherty. Who, for that reason, would never allow Remus to be prosecuted. But if the whole ball of wax was sanctioned by a higher authority, someone winds up with a career-making case. I'm five dollars worth of trouble, Lester. The real crooks are in an upstairs office in the Justice Department. That's quite an allegation. I'm just telling you what you already know. That's a scene from Boardwalk Empire talking about George Remus with a, a fictional character meant to be Mabel Walker Willebrand. I'm talking with Karen Abbott, author of the book that tells the real story, and it's called The Ghosts of Eden Park, and it is just an absolute sizzler. So you looked through all of Mabel's letters to her parents, her journals, all of her written materials, her files. Did you get a sense that she felt like she was indeed being had? No, um, you know, I think that she got the sense that that she was the only one in the Justice Department doing any real work Mm -hmm. um, in terms of bootleggers. Um, She knew that all of her bosses, if not, um, you know, were indifferent to the law or openly hostile to the law, a lot of them. Um, but she she was clear that that Harry Doherty ever never actually asked her to take it easy on Remus or any other bootlegger. Um, but she she also was very well aware that that she was not going to get any help from them. She was also a woman who said to her parents, "I'm not into girly girl stuff." She was interesting. She had a, she was a palm reader. Uh, well, she had been married once and divorced, and she did have a beau back in California who proposed to her, but she just couldn't commit to a traditional marriage. She, and she was stuck with a guy's name, which, I mean, people, one of the annoying things I think was that people kept calling her Mrs. Willenbrandt, you know, didn't, didn't, no matter what her status was, her marital status was, she was going to be Mrs. Willenbrandt. But she was also, you know, like judged by what she wore, how she wore her hair. Newspapers were absolutely fascinated about her. I see in the stuff that you pulled from her journals that she really was a feminist. She really, she really didn't want to commit to, let's say, another traditional marriage. Did you get a sense of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, she uh, was very explicit about why her first marriage broke up. She called herself Joan of Arc um, during her five-year marriage to this guy. That that was, uh, you know, the amount of of sort of saintly behavior she had to put up with. Uh, she had to exhibit in order to just to endure. Um, you know, she, he was sick for a time period. His family was sick for a time period. She was um, taking care of everybody. She was going to law school at night. She was teaching classes. Um, she was, uh, you know, sort of extended very thin, barely had any sleep. And, and he, um, you know, was not holding up his end of the bargain. Um, and and Willembrandt uh, separated with him and uh, moved in with a, a female classmate and I think never looked back. And, and she wrote some very um, prescient and and. Uh, progressive articles about the challenges that faced women who wanted to um, have a career in that time period and and how they had to um, not only uh, meet men's standards, um, but also exceed them in other ways just just to sort of overcome the handicap that people had immediately during that time period when when, um, confronted by a woman who had ambition. Mm. And although Mabel wished to have more women on her team, she had a real challenge finding clean agents, and she did assign one Franklin Dodge to the Remus case. And after that, you know, despite Remus's extensive and expensive legal payouts, Death Valley Farm does get busted and George Remus indicted. Why does Harry Doherty or Jess Smith not intervene in that case? 
Well, I think the whole thing just sort of fell apart. Um, you know, the ace in the hole wasn't quite the ace in the hole. I think Harry Doherty was worried about his own career. There were already allegations swirling around that he was kind of crooked and, and tied up with Remus's empire. And I think he was just decided to um, sort of wash his hands at that time of, of Remus and, and just see what happened. Um, while Jess Smith also continued making promises and extracting more money from Remus. So they were sort of playing both ends. Um, but Will and Brandt, uh did have a hard time recruiting good agents. Um, and she said that the only way that she was going to get an honest force was to also recruit more women as agents, lots of them. Um, but for the time being, when Remus was, you know, the first thing on her mind, she decided that an agent named Fr uh, Franklin Dodge was her best bet. She called him her ace detective. Um, and she sent him to investigate Remus's empire. Um, and, and Remus did indeed go to jail um, because of the evidence that Franklin Dodge was able to acquire. So he was sentenced to pay a $10,000 fine, two years at federal penitentiary in Atlanta, where he was housed next to the southern bootlegger William Haar on what was called <laughs> Millionaire's Row. They're just wonderful accounts in the book of his preparation and of, of Mabel's view of that prison that I will leave to readers. But curious about Haar, he was head of this civilian. Savannah for bootlegging empire. What role did they play during Prohibition? Oh, they were um, they were the biggest bootlegging team in the South. I think um, sort of the uh, the southern equivalent of George Remus's operation, um, and they were very crafty. They they um, sort of moved a lot of alcohol uh, in from the Caribbean and other islands. Um, and hit it uh, similarly to the ways it was being smuggled up in the north um, and, and basically had a very lucrative operation going. Uh, and Franklin Dodge also was involved in the investigation against the Savannah Four. Um, but Willie Haar, uh, Remus, who ended up being a good friend of Remus's in prison, uh, liked to say that that Franklin Dodge pretended to go, you know, went undercover and pretended to be a bootlegger himself. But Willie Haar saw through him right away. Hmm. So he was somebody who was in play. But there's also a great little bit of uh, uh, the prison warden, William Sartrain. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Sartain. Sartain, who was yeah. paid off for posh accommodations. What happened to him? They eventually turned on him. They did. Well, just to describe Remus's cell for, for a minute, you know, he had more of a suite. Um, he and, and Har were able to eat dinner together at a dining table, lavishly appointed with flowers that were brought in every evening by Imogene. And they hired a maid and a cook. Um, you know, Imogene came into Remus's cell and scrubbed the floor on her hands and knees. Uh, she was actually called the angel of the pen by the other prisoners. Um, and so they paid for these privileges. They paid the warden of the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, uh, Sartain. Um, and this came to Mabel's attention, and she did send Franklin Dodge down to investigate. And Sartain himself ended up uh, going on trial and spending time in the very prison where he once <laughs> served as warden. It really is an unbelievable story at so many different turns. But while he's in prison... Remus starts getting these, he's had these flashes of violent behavior, but these he calls brainstorms. They, they just completely overcome him. How did they show up for him? Well, brainstorm was a fascinating part of my research. Um, it was a euphemism in the, in the decades, in the 1920s and, er, and earlier, maybe dating back to the turn of the century. Uh, it was a brainstorm was a euphemism for uh, in temporary insanity. So just these little buzzes where your mind suddenly you know, wasn't your own for a few moments. Um, and Remus said that he started suffering from these in prison. And it was mostly because he suspected a growing romantic relationship between his wife, Imogene, and Agent Franklin Dodge. Um, and as the evidence became more clear, 
that this indeed was going on, um, Remus became increasingly unhinged. And at this time, there's another investigation implicating Remus and also Imogene regarding a Jack Daniels distillery, which I will also leave to readers. But J. Edgar Hoover, a young man working at the FBI, was also hearing those same kind of rumors. What was the relationship between Hoover and Mabel like? Well, I I kind of love the relationship between them because Mabel was essentially his boss, if you can imagine Hoover being bossed around by anyone. But this was 1924. Hoover was only 29 years old and newly named the director of the Bureau of Investigation, uh, which was the precursor to the FBI. Um, And as Mabel Willembrand starts hearing um, disturbing rumors about uh, Franklin Dodge's behavior with Imogene Remus, she decides that they should probably um, take a closer look. Um, She and Hoover have a conversation about it. And Hoover assigns one of his uh, men to go down and and start investigating Franklin Dodge and see exactly what the agent was up to with Imogene Remus. And what does he find? (laughs) Well, to back up for a minute, um, the way that that Remus, uh, Imogene Remus and Franklin Dodge get connected in the first place was because Remus asked her to. Um, you know, Remus heard from Willie Har that, that Dodge was amenable to bribes, and Remus had a grand idea that if he paid Dodge enough money, Dodge might go back and use his influence with the uh, Department of Justice to try to get Remus's sentence uh, commuted to make it, to, you know, get him out of jail. And he asked Imogene to, quote unquote, cultivate Dodge. And Imogene, you know, greedy, uh, seductive Imogene, did not have to be asked twice. She certainly went and started to cultivate Dodge. <laughs> Big mistake. Once I lived a life of a millionaire. He was like Oprah, giving away cars before Oprah gave away cars, and Scarface before Scarface. George Remus, once the biggest bootlegger in America. And my guest, Karen Abbott, tells the story of his ups and downs in The Ghosts of Eden Park. She'll be at the Atlanta History Center, the Gwinnett County Library, and at the Decatur Book Festival at the end of August. We're going to take a short break and continue with the other woman who helped bring Remus down and talk about the legacy of Prohibition. Meanwhile, here's Bessie Smith with Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around for more of On Second Thought. Nobody knows you when you down and out. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. And my guest is Karen Abbott, author who's going to be at the Atlanta History Center and the Gwinnett County Library and at the Decatur Book Festival to talk about her book, The Ghost of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. What Rockefeller was to oil, George Remus was to bootleg liquor, a man who so embodied the excesses of the era that he's thought to have been the model for F. Scott Fitzgerald's Jay Gatsby character in The Great Gatsby. His operation was so large that he had more distilleries and drug companies than he could count. There is a significant murder and trial in the subtitle that became the talk of the nation, and that, in a sense, put prohibition on trial. Well, this thoroughly researched nonfiction novel does read like a thriller, however, so we're not going to give that away, and we'll leave that to readers and motivated Googlers to figure that out. But for now, we're going to look at another critical figure in this story, Imogene Remus. Now, we mentioned that they met when she was cleaning up his office, and you gave us a little on her history, but tell us about her involvement in Remus's bootleg empire. Yes, uh, you know, 
Remus implicitly trusted Imogene. He thought she was a savvy woman, a smart woman, um, somebody who would be a great asset to him, not only personally but professionally. And he confided in her about all of her deals. He sought her um, advice, uh, and he really trusted her with the inner workings of his operation. In fact, he actually called her Prime Minister. <laughs> that was uh, one of his nick many nicknames for, for uh, Imogene. And Imogene, meanwhile, only had one nickname for Remus, which was Daddy. Mm. Well, there are early signs that she does want to fleece him or told others that she wanted to. He, in the meantime, was showering her with compliments, gifts, and his little nicknames. But not always. She could also be the target of his rage. What, what did you find about his real record of violence? Because this is a man who sort of charmed people in his own way, certainly courted the press when he had yeah. to. Yeah, that's true. Remus could be incredibly charming um, and also had a very volatile temper. Uh, I think one of the most striking incidents that illustrates his temper um, happened before he went to prison in Atlanta. Uh, he came home from business in the middle of the night one night and discovered that Imogene was not there in their Price Hill mansion. And he asked a servant where she went and was told that she took off with some friends and a salesman to Indianapolis. Um, and Remus was furious. He knew who the salesman was. He did not trust him. He didn't like him. And he was furious with Imogene that she disobeyed this order. So he gets his driver to speed him out to Indianapolis in the middle of the night. And he brings with him a loaded cane, which I did not know which that, what that was at the beginning of my research. But it was a gentleman's accessory uh, that could also be used as a weapon. So he goes to the Claypool Hotel in the Indianapolis, which was their favorite hotel in the city. He knew exactly where she'd be. He finds out what room the salesman is in, knocks on the door, and confronts this man with this loaded cane. Um, and I will, you know, dun dun dun. I will leave. I will leave a little cliffhanger there. But but it's a quite a frightening encounter. Yeah, it didn't end well for the rug salesman. But certainly, Imogene was his willing partner in both dressing up this mansion and later, it seems, a willing partner in stripping it down. Would love to hear a little bit of the details that they went to, to, as you said, you know, they were, he was striving for another social class. Can you tell us a little bit about what lengths they went to to display their wealth? Sure. They, well, the mansion, um, which was this beautiful structure, um, which unfortunately is no longer with us, uh, they had, had 31 rooms, all of them carefully curated by Imogene and Remus. There was a billiard room. Um, there were parlors. There was a solarium. Uh, of course, there were the Imogene baths, um, which was uh, the, the pool, the name of the pool. And the pool was it, just a marvel. Um, it was heated, which you could imagine was an incredible luxury for the time. It had Turkish baths, uh, Swedish needle baths, and also electric baths, which were sort of an early version of a tanning bed uh, heated by incandescent, incandescent lights and said to make a user frisky. Um, and there were just, uh, you know, imported oil paintings, rugs, uh, chandeliers the size of automobiles. Um, and Remus's prized possession was an authentic signature of George Washington's, which was worth $50,000. Well, after reports of her rather brazen affair with this federal prohibition agent, Franklin Dodge, when Remus was locked up in Atlanta and later Athens, Georgia, and then Ohio, it seems that Franklin Dodge was sort of taking on the role of Remus. How did we see that play out? Well, it was kind of astounding, uh, the the glee that, that Franklin Dodge and Imogene displayed as they were ruining Remus's empire and sort of ransacking his life. Um, you know, the, the story is that Imogene left behind, took, took Remus's China, 
but left behind a china set that was engraved with the initials FD mm-hmm. um where whereas the you know their original set was GR for George Remus um also a car that had been um initialed George Remus was changed to FD for Franklin Dodge uh and and basically just just took anything that of value to him his his whole law library in there with his leather bound books his signature of George Washington um, she, I think they left behind a pair of men's shoes that were not Remus's size. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and that's about it. That's what we call burn. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, there was a testimony by one Fiorello LaGuardia, who would later become, of course, the famous mayor of New York City, who testified about the corruption, not only inside of the, the prohibition officers, but also talked a large, in a more large sense about what prohibition was doing to the country. I'd be interested and hearing you talk about that because it was an argument that I had not heard before. Well, LaGuardia's position on prohibition, uh, he was avidly against it, uh, was that basically it was an attack on immigrant citizens. Um, and his uh, that, that theory is supported by several comments made by his colleagues. Um, you know, things like New York City doesn't have any real Americans um, and, and other large, it was basically an attack, attack on large American cities, um, which of course were uh, highly populated with immigrant communities, many of whom had been in the liquor business and the beer business. Um, and it was just sort of a, a xenophobic expression. But he was on to Dodge, in fact, used him as an example of corruption in the agents. What were his accusations? He did. Um, he was actually alerted to the situation by George Connors, one of Remus's, Remus's lieutenant um, and who gave him all of the paperwork and very, you know, craftily uh, encouraged LaGuardia to talk about this actually on the on the floor, on the, the house floor. And LaGuardia spent uh, a, an afternoon making a long impassioned speech about how corrupt uh, prohibition agents were, uh, named, specifically named Franklin Dodge and what he was doing to George Remus and how was it fair that uh, George Remus was locked up for doing the things that Franklin Dodge was basically doing now and, um, and, and you know, without any repercussions whatsoever. But by this time, had he resigned? I can't recall. Had Dodge resigned? He had resigned. Yeah, he had resigned by this time. Um, and, uh, you know, you can imagine that Willebrand and other people at the Justice Department really didn't want the real reason to get out. Um, you know, Willebrand had enough trouble with her credibility in terms of just being a woman trying to do her job in that day and age. So the last thing that she wanted, it put her in a difficult position because she didn't want Dodge there either. You know, he had gravely disappointed her on a professional and personal level because she had trusted him. Um, but she also didn't want anyone to know what had happened. I think that she thought it would set the cause back for women's careers in, in politics uh, by decades. Yeah, so much riding on her shoulders, but not so for J. Edgar Hoover. Did he want to prosecute Dodge? Absolutely. Um, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was such an interesting character at this time period. He had managed to, you know, become director despite his shady participation in the Palmer raids, uh, which, of course, where um, communists and anarchists were rounded up illegally and, and detained. Um, but he was truly interested in having a corrupt free uh, force of, of prohibition agents. He begged Willebrand to prosecute Dodge. And, of course, the final decision about that was up to Willebrand. But he laid out all of this evidence and was basically like, Mrs. Willebrand, what this is, the, look at this. You know, the, we really have to prosecute this guy. Um, and I just like to say, you know, in, in this book, J. Edgar Hoover is actually one of the good guys, um, <laughs> which is which is quite something. And they meet each other, I guess, later in life. But we will get to that in a minute. Meanwhile, out of both prison terms that he has to serve, 
George Remus is furious and sees that his house has basically been stripped bare by Franklin Dodge and by Imogene. Can't find him. There's a little bit of a cat and mouse game of him trying to find them. And he begins sullying her reputation publicly as a divorce trial is pending. How does he begin to think of Imogene and and project her to the public? Um, Well, he went after both of them, um, I think, with equal ferocity. He called Franklin Dodge that moral pervert, that moral pimp. Um, um, this, this social, social pervert, uh, and he called Imogene, um, that ruined woman, oh, the, the, uh, decomposing mass of clay <laughs> and basically just proclaimed to the newspapers, uh, exactly what she was doing with Franklin Dodge. They were carrying on across the country, sleeping in hotels together, having whiskey parties, um, all sorts of debauchery that he sort of, uh, laid out for the world to see. And, and everybody listened to George Remus and was interested in what he had to say. And Imogene was not pleased about that. This this really is a thriller. I mean, it builds up to a sort of unbelievable crime and an unbelievable aftermath. In fact, like you know, the last third of the book is all about that. But there is all this testimony that you went through to better understand George Remus and his legal woes. And they're sprinkled throughout the book. Now, clearly, you use some of that stuff for background because I, I, you know, reading details of his life. But you include it in the book. Did you decide that these are just too good to, <laughs> I can't not use these? What was really gripping to me about the trial transcript was was people's testimony. And um, in the testimony, you couldn't tell who was more dangerous, Imogene Remus or George Remus. Hmm. At one point, Imogene Remus and Dodge hire a hitman to go and kill Remus. Um, And the hitman is terrified of both Imogene and George Remus. Um, And and this is a hardened criminal, you know, professional killer. And he he just really is is terrified of this entire situation. The the animosity between and the love triangle of of George Remus, Imogene and Franklin Dodge um, just reaches such a boiling point um, that, you you know, it could only end in, in murder. And their fate is watched by people across the country. At this trial that you talked of, 900 people turned away from the courtroom on the first day of trial. There is wailing, there's sobbing, there's theatrics. And in many ways, prohibition is on trial. One view of history is that organized crime absolutely took off during prohibition. But there is a report by Mabel who points out that, you know, cirrhosis is down, arrests are down. What did you come away thinking about the the morality crusade that was the 18th Amendment? Who did it serve and who did it not? You know, there were some valid reasons uh, that that people pushed for prohibition. Um, I mean, it was mainly women uh, who were tired of their husbands losing jobs and killing themselves and with alcohol poisoning and cirrhosis and um, beating them. The domestic violence rates, of course, uh, of somebody was an alcoholic and they were married to these men. Um, and so there there were valid reasons for these women to really push for and crusade for this uh, law. But, of course, you know, American history proves time and time again you can't legislate vice. Uh, and, um, you know, Mabel Walker Willenbrandt also recognized this. She recognized the futility of trying to enforce such a law. And it wasn't just that she was battling um, the crooked politicians and the corrupt agents. She was battling a public that just really had no interest in, in stopping drinking. Yeah. Um, and uh, she she recognized this. And, and you know, by the end of her career, uh, you know, had pretty much thrown up her hands, I think. Yeah. And she she was accused of using her office for political gain in the election of 1928. Her name sort of dragged through the mud and she resigns and goes back to California. 
What did she make? Where of- she represents wine growers, uh, grape growers. <laughs> by the way, she gets <laughs> she gets involved with um, representing the the wine industry, which I I thought was quite ironic. Um, and and she was uh, she was again uh, just remained a progressive woman um, throughout the rest of her life. Uh, she was um, very proud of her legal career. How many times she she went before the United States Supreme Court to argue bootlegging cases, including against Remus before the Supreme Court. Um, and one of my favorite quotes about her um, was by uh, a friend of hers who ended up being involved uh, decades later in the Watergate hearings. And he said, um, if Mabel Willenbrand had worn trousers, she would have been president. Hmm. So this was a time that was supposed to be a flourishing of early feminism. What did you see in your research? Uh, it was very true that the 1920s were just, I think, a singularly dynamic and interesting period in American history. Um, you know, the the war swept away a lot of gender norms. Women had flooded the workplace. And after the war, America found itself in this sort of in- interesting in-between period. Um, you know, people realized that life was short and they became more hedonistic. And it was before the Depression came and put a damper on everything. And um, women you know, ran with this new empowerment that they found once they had entered the workforce and they just decided, you know, and they have suffrage now, they had the vote and uh, they were empowered. And I think a lot of people were really terrified about this. Uh, and there were constant newspaper articles talking about uh, flappers and the flapper backlash and predatory flappers um, and how they were forcing boys to engage in unseemly activities like cheek dancing. <laughs> Um, and there was actually headlines specifically tar- targeting middle-aged flappers um, who were uh, roundly criticized for trying to in, um, imitate their younger counterparts. Um, and, of course, Imogene Remus was a middle-aged flapper. She was about 39 years old at the time that Remus went to prison. Um, and she, you know, the definition of a middle-aged flapper was somebody who deposits her husband at the home and goes out in search of culture, uh, which Imogene Remus certainly did. And and you know, people were largely terrified on some degree. Some people anywhere were terrified that suddenly their wives, their mothers, their sisters, their daughters, their girlfriends had the right to vote. Um, and they were they were just sort of, you know, what what's next? What is the slippery slope of women's rights? Well, we know where it went from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're still stuck in the 20s on some things. Well, Karen Abbott, what a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Virginia. The pleasure was mine. Karen Abbott is author of The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. She'll be at the Atlanta History Center on August 28th, the Gwinnett County Library on August 30th, and at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday the 31st. In keeping with the mood, this is Ain't She Sweet, a 1927 hit by Gene Austin. Ain't she sweet, see her coming down the street. I ask you confidentially, ain't she sweet? On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jessica Lowell. Special thanks to Bram Sable-Smith for mixing this segment. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. I ask you confidentially, ain't she sweet?